Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, washed in his blood, cleansed of all our transgressions, purified and ready to do your will. We pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, and that you would keep us from distractions, keep us in the narrow way. Through Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, we pray. Amen. Kids, four and five, up to and including kindergartners, can head on back. Blaze and Samantha are back there. I'll take you upstairs, your classroom. This morning we'll be looking at the Eighth Commandment. And we'll also be looking at a couple of big chunks of, of text in a couple other places. So if you don't have a Bible, whether physically or an app or something like that, there are a couple Bibles on the back table back there, and there are also uh, other Bibles even further back underneath the uh, offering table in the back there. Please go ahead and grab one. The text for the sermon, Deuteronomy 5, verse 19. And if you want to get ahead just a little bit and open up to Matthew 25 and also John 15 and just stick your fingers in those two places, we'll be going there in a little bit. Deuteronomy 5. Verse 19, the word of the Lord, and you shall not steal. So I used to be really afraid of uh, acid rain. Um, Growing up in a small school district, all of the science textbooks were, you know, 10 or 15 years old. And uh, there was a large section in one of them about acid rain. You know, there are pictures of these big marble statues and these marble facades of buildings, and it looked like they were just melted. And, you know, as a, as a, as a little kid, you look at that and you think, well, if it can melt stone, what is it going to do to me? Um, but, of course, you know, this sort of thing only happened in strange, faraway lands like Pittsburgh. So we were safe here. But you don't, you don't hear about acid rain anymore. Um, and there's a really good reason that you don't. Uh, you don't hear about it anymore because we actually took care of it. Uh, more or less, we stopped pumping so much coal ash into the air, and there's really no more acid rain. But, but you don't talk about that. Uh, we don't hear anything or say anything about that. It's not 
hey, good news, guys, we took care of acid rain. It's just we don't say anything anymore. Years ago, National Geographic shared a video of this really emaciated polar bear. Um, and it was, it was terribly thin, its fur was patchy, it looked very sickly. And Nat Geo published this, and its warning was, this is what climate change looks like. That's what they said at the video. And I would imagine many of you know what I'm talking about, because two and a half billion people saw the video. And you know, the polar bear is the poster boy now for, for climate change. And I, I don't know, uh, perhaps with good reason, you see that really sickly, terrible-looking polar bear, and, and you know, your heart goes out for it, and you, you don't want it to be the case. Well, it is sad to see a decline in the polar bear population. You know, in the 1950s, there were as many as 5,000 polar bear in the wild. But now, as of a recent count in 2015, the polar bear population is only hovering somewhere around 30,000. Now, wait a minute. So what we're saying is that there are six times as many polar bears in the wild now as when my grandparents were my age. You'd think again that that would be an occasion for celebration. You know, the resurgence of the polar bears. Now, what's going on? Now, I'm not trying to make any point or give any opinions on the reality of climate change. I don't want to touch that. I'm, it's not my point. My point is, though, that if you take something like climate change, which we love to talk about, or lots of our culture loves to talk about, as some big thing that people get really freaked out about, about the prospect of climate change, or maybe they don't get freaked out, but they at least see it as a useful talking point to get others to do something they want. You know, whether it's genuine concern or it's a power grab, we can at least all acknowledge that climate change is something that maybe 50 years ago we didn't talk about at all, and now you can hear it being spoken of around coffee at the truck stop diner. And I think many of us are sick of hearing about it. But I think the reason we're sick of hearing about it has to do with the, the same reason why we don't hear about the good things, like acid rain being taken care of, polar bears coming back. I mean, acid rain was a real problem. Statues outside were being dissolved. And certainly, we want to see the polar bears doing well. But the question is, why does every conversation have to turn to doom and gloom? I mean, just recently, the UN Secretary General said that the era of global warming is over because now we're in the era of global boiling. Wow. Time to paint end is near on a cardboard sign and start waving it around. But my question is, why is this the narrative? Why is it doom and gloom, end of the world, everything's going terribly, we have to do something? Why is that the way that we hear so often all the things going on in the world? 
You know, no matter, no matter what we do, it seems like the world is only getting worse. Whether it's global warming or racism or income inequality, it seems like all the news outlets, all the politicians, even the coffee table talk is how it's getting worse. So what in the world is going on? And my guess would be that we have latched on to guilt and fear as the motivators to get people to do things. Because guilt and fear can be really powerful motivators. In a world that has rejected God as the foundation for morality, how do you get people to do what is right? If you, if you can't point to the law of God, if you can't point to some standard to hold people accountable to, what are you going to do to get them to do what you want them to do? Well, you can take hold of their guilt and fear because even though our culture has rejected God, that doesn't mean that the guilt has gone away. It doesn't mean that our fear of judgment has gone away. We may reject it as a culture, we may push it down, but we still have it. See, rejecting God doesn't get rid of our guilt and fear. Rejecting God just means we don't know where our guilt and fear come from. So we project them onto other things. We start looking for things to solve the problems that we have that absolutely can't solve it. We think in ways like, oh, if we could only solve climate change, then maybe I wouldn't be so afraid of the future. Oh, if we could only fix income inequality, then maybe I wouldn't feel so guilty for having all of this stuff when I know other people don't have things. Even though the guilt and the fear are misplaced, we still recognize that they're really powerful ways to motivate people. The problem is we're not made to be motivated by guilt and fear. Now, when we come to the Ten Commandments, it's sometimes easy to fall into that exact same pattern of we see the commandments, we see where we don't measure up, and we see our guilt, and we fear judgment because we don't measure up. And even as Christians, we can feel this way. We look and we see how we fall short, and then we look at the commandments and we think, okay, well, I will just run to Jesus and be saved. And we do, and we find our salvation in him, and we rejoice in God that he would save such a hopeless fool as me. But that's not all that the commandments are for. We can get stuck thinking that now we live as Christians in this state of constant awareness of our failure to measure up. We can get fooled into thinking that what humility means is to just always remember how terrible we are. We can think that, yes, we're going to thank God for being gracious to us, but, you know, maybe, just maybe he's not quite happy with us right now. 
that maybe he's just putting up with us. For Jesus' sake, and we thank, we thank God for that, but maybe he's just putting up with us. And he's really just waiting for us to finally make it to heaven where he can do the real work. And that kind of thinking will lead us to be weak and impotent Christians who really do no good in the world. Because if you think, well, I can't really do anything good, then, then why, why bother trying? If you think all of, my, all of my work is just not going to amount to anything good, then why bother? But that's not what God wants for us. It's not why he gave us his commandments. And it's not what he thinks of us. He does not want us to be living in a constant, ho-hum state of moping around in our guilt and our fear that will never measure up. God wants his children, and remember that's who we are, his children. He wants his children to be motivated by his pleasure in us. Because we can truly do good in this life. We can truly make our Heavenly Father smile upon us. When we are empowered by the new life He has given us, purchased by the blood of Jesus His Son, through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit within us, we can live as pleases Him. You can bring a smile to your Heavenly Father's face. You can keep his commandments. You can shine as lights in the world. And so it's dangerous when we look at the Ten Commandments to think that they're only there to show us where we fail or to show us that we need Jesus. They, they do that. We do fail to measure up to the perfect standard of God's law. But having been cleansed in Jesus Christ, we receive the commandments not just from the top of a fiery, smoldering mountain. We receive them from the pierced hands of a Savior who empowers us to keep them. So that's the, the angle I'm going to take looking at the Eighth Commandment. We are going to look at it. We are going to see what it means and, and how we, we can break it, how we can fall short. But we are also going to see that it's designed for us to keep. It's not designed to destroy us. It's designed to give us a new way to live. So let's look at the Eighth Commandment and at keeping the Eighth Commandment. You know, as I read it before, and it's fairly short, and probably most of us have it memorized, you shall not steal. Now, truthfully, there's not a whole lot that needs explaining to get the basics of this commandment. It's not some deep mystery. It's plain. Don't steal. Or, you know, as many of you might say when teaching your toddlers, 
Don't take what's not yours without asking for it. It's a pretty simple, pretty simple idea. But I want to look at two passages, two short passages first, to kind of give us a little bit more understanding of what's all, all encompassed in this commandment. So the first passage is Deuteronomy 19 and verse 14. And it says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, landmarks, of course, that's, that's where you could tell the property lines are. You know, if you're, if you're growing wheat in your field and you're planting row by row by row by row, and then all of a sudden you notice, oh, the landmark's over here, I'm five rows over. And you think, well, you know, I did do the work of planting it, so I, I should probably also get the, get the reward of the harvest. So maybe I'll just take that stone and move it over five rows. And doing that, you've stolen land from your neighbor. Because that landmark is the thing that says what is yours and what is his. And so when you move it, you're taking land that's not rightfully yours. That's what, that's what this prohibition is about. How would this look today? Now, maybe it would look like plowing a little too far into your neighbor's field. You know, this is a farming community. But it could also look like putting up your fence just over the property line so you can have all the property that you actually have inside your fence. You know, you're, you're, you're just kind of edging over. Or it might look like rubbing the name off of the Tupperware in the office refrigerator so you could eat that thing instead of, instead of the person that actually brought it in. So we learn from this the importance of respecting your neighbor's property. You know, to paraphrase what Jesus says about doing unto others as we would have done unto us, we could say this, treat your neighbor's property like you would want your neighbor to treat your property. Let's look at another passage, this time in Leviticus 19, verses 35 through 37, where it says, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So this commandment is about counterfeits and about cutting corners. In the economy that Leviticus is written within, there's not a national treasury putting out standardized currency. Right? Every merchant has their own set of scales and weights and measures. So if it would say, you know, this amount of wheat is this amount of silver. 
you would put the wheat on the scale and you'd put the weights there, and then you'd put the silver on the scale and you'd put the weights there, and that would be a proper exchange. That's how you knew that you gave the right amount of money for the right amount of whatever product. But an unscrupulous merchant could easily make a little extra money by just having two sets of weights. You've got the lighter set, that's where you put your product, so it balances out and it's a little bit lighter, but it looks right. And then you've got the heavier set, and that's when you're weighing out your, what you're getting paid. It's like, oh, just a little more silver, it's not quite enough. It wouldn't be that hard to trick customers using two different sets of weights. But also a customer could easily trick a merchant by counterfeiting that coinage, right? If it's meant to be silver, and it weighs a certain amount, and you mix some lead in there with it, and you make it look good, it's going to be heavy enough to be the right weight, but it's not going to be valuable. So how would that look today? It could look like selling a product that isn't worth what you're asking for it. Maybe like trying to get rid of a car that you know has a major problem, but you don't tell the buyer. You talk up your car like it's the best thing in the world and you could hardly bear to part with it. But you say, you know what, I'm going to give you a deal. And so you charge way more than you know the car is worth. And you give the taillight warranty as soon as there are... As soon as they're driving away, the transmission goes out, and you're like, sorry. It could also look like cutting corners on your job. Your boss gives you a project, and he expects it to take two hours, so he gives you two hours to do it. And you figure out, well, if you skip this step and this step and that one, and they don't really matter that much, uh, I could probably get done in 90 minutes. And so you settle into this rhythm of you work for 90 minutes, and then you take a half hour to yourself. And you work for 90 minutes on the next part, and you take another half hour for yourself. Time can be stolen just as easily as property or money. So to recap, in this commandment, don't take what's not yours without asking. Treat your neighbor's property like you would want your property to be treated. And remember that it's not just property or money. It's time and resources and everything that can be stolen. Now we could go into a lot of other things. We could go into a lot of other scenarios. But this pretty well covers what it is to steal. And even if it's maybe kind of, I don't know if this is stealing or not, if it happened to you, if the shoe was on the other foot, I think it would be pretty clear. Our consciences are pretty good at telling when we're missing out. So, 
instead of taking this and driving it down deep and trying to get it deep into your conscience in some sense of like, oh, we're terrible sinners and there's nothing we can do, and absolutely we're just always going to fail in some way or another. I want to recognize, especially what Blaze preached last Sunday, that we are children of God. We've been changed. And one of the ways that we've been changed is the way in which we are to be motivated to keep his commandments. We should be motivated by God's pleasure in us. So to see that, I want to look at two passages. I said earlier, we're going to look at Matthew 25 and John 15. Let's first look at Matthew 25. Be reading verses 14 through 30, and then I'll kind of talk about it verse by verse. So starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servants, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So notice a few things here. This is, the, this is the bad example, being motivated by fear rather than motivated by God's pleasure. First notice that the master gave his servants tasks that they could accomplish. It says, to the one he gave five and another two and another one, each according to his ability. He wasn't giving them impossible tasks. And the first two servants received the task from their master and set to work and accomplished it. They say, Master, you delivered five and I have 
I've made five more. Master, you've delivered two, and I've made two more. And having accomplished the tasks that their master gave them, they are rewarded. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant is motivated by fear. And he tells us as much when he says to his master, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And Jesus says that's a wicked servant. He's a wicked servant, and he did not live rightly because he was afraid of his master. Now, he was capable of doing the task that his master set for him. But because he was afraid, he didn't accomplish it. The good and faithful servants were not afraid, and they accomplished their tasks. So we see here that even though guilt and fear can be powerful motivators, they also destroy motivation. The wicked servant's motivation was completely destroyed because he was afraid. I want to now turn to that second passage, John 15, and see how Jesus motivates us to keep his commandments. John 15, reading from verse 5 through 11, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There are six things for us to see in this passage and walk through them. The first thing is that Jesus empowers us to keep the commandments. What he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus empowers us to keep the commandments. We saw that earlier. We're not, we're not kept We're not given tasks that we can't do. Second thing, God is glorified when we keep the commandments. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God is glorified when we keep the commandments. The third thing, Jesus loves us in the same way that the Father loves him. He says it. 
as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Fourth thing, Jesus is giving us the way to experience the fullness of his love. It says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Fifth thing, Jesus is not asking anything of us that he hasn't already done. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And the sixth thing, Jesus is telling us this so that we may share in his joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus, empowering us to keep the commandments in his love that is the same as the Father's love for him, in doing what he has done, in giving us the ability to keep the commandments, we experience Jesus' own joy. That's the motivation that Jesus gives his disciples for keeping the commandments. And of course, when he comes across those who have not come to him, those who do not know him, those who have not embraced him for eternal life, he does hold up the law to show them all their faults so that they would come to him. But after we come to Jesus, we are not left the same. We are not left the same pitiful, hopeless sinners. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says to the Philippians, work out your salvation. He doesn't say, there's nothing you can do, so don't worry about it. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he does not say either, because you might fail. No, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, consider that. God is doing a work in you so that he could be pleased with you. The one who is in need of absolutely nothing, the one who is totally happy in himself in the fellowship of the Trinity for eternity, the one who lacks nothing, is doing a work in you that he might be truly pleased with you.
So in conclusion, there are just three things I have for conclusion. One, if you're breaking the commandment, stop. That's pretty simple, but it's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians. He says, let the thief no longer steal. That's his admonition. He doesn't, he doesn't have this huge argument. He just says, let the thief no longer steal. You're in Christ now. You don't need to seek through other means, through breaking the commandment, to have something that you lack. You have Christ, and he has given you the power to keep his commandments. And I know it just sounds like going to the therapist and saying, well, you know, I just can't stop doing this thing, and the therapist says to you, well, just stop that. Just go ahead and stop. But it's not through our own sinful fleshly abilities to stop it. It's through Christ in us that Paul can say, you actually do have the ability to refrain from sinning. More and more, day by day, as Christ renews you. It's not hopeless. Secondly, be motivated by God's pleasure in your work. And of course, it's in your work, like in your job. What, what Paul says in the Ephesians, right? Let him labor instead of steal. But it's in your work, in all of your life, all of your living. Paul says to the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul's giving us motivation here, right? He's telling us there is a reward for good work as a Christian. It's not just we sneak in just barely the gate of heaven. Just, we just squeak by because of Jesus. God is actually doing something in every one of us to make us more and more righteous living righteously. And while it is true that our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the faith that saves is a living faith that God empowers to make us 
truly living after his law. And finally, seek the ability to keep the commandments from your union with Christ. I really couldn't resist this using Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and now Galatians. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is real. This is one of the realest things for the Apostle Paul. That his life truly is lived by faith in the Son of God. That his life truly is Christ alive in him. And so when you, when you come up against one of the commandments of God and you think, I don't know if I can keep this. I don't know if I can do it. Where you need to go is not dig down deep inside and find some power for motivating yourself through, oh, well, if I don't do this, here will be the consequences. What you need to do is look to Christ and see that because he lives, you also can live. Because he is righteous, you also can live following after him. And always still recognizing that all of this is is from Christ. Our whole salvation, beginning to end. From the washing away of the guilt of our sins and the renewing of our lives to live after Him. It's all Christ. When Christ was crucified, there were two men beside him that had broken this commandment. Two thieves, one on each side. And in the Gospel of Luke, we see how one rails against him, saying, if you're, if you're, really, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself and save us. One of them is mocking Christ, hung up on a cross, mocking, and his dying breath, mocking. And the other one in the agony of crucifixion looks over at Jesus and sees with faith what what mortal eyes don't see. He sees someone hanging, crucified, weak, 
seemingly, helpless seemingly, praying to his Father, forgive these. And God does a work in him, and he says, that other thief says to Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He believes, he believes that this guy who is hanging on a cross is going to have a kingdom. He has faith. And Jesus says, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. If you have not come to Jesus Christ and seen him as your Savior, you have that choice. You can be the mocker who mocks God until your dying breath, or you can be the one who says, I am justly condemned, but Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul says, For whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. When we take what we call sometimes the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming that his death washes away our sins. We're proclaiming that we are forgiven through that alone. So in a moment, I'll pray. And the worship band will come back up. And you'll be free to come and take and eat. And just a word about the communion. We, we do have, practice open communion, which just means if you are, uh, you don't have to be a member here to take communion. But you do have to be a member of Jesus Christ. You do have to have come before the Lord, confess your sins, 
trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And if that's true, then please come and eat from the table. Parents with young children, if, if they have made a profession of faith, then by all means welcome them to the table. If not, then use this as a time to, to teach them what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans. You have not left part of our salvation undone. You have saved us totally from your wrath, from the consequences of our sin, from the guilt, the shame, of sinfulness. And you have also purchased for us newness of life. We can live in such a way as actually pleases you, as truly brings a smile to our Heavenly Father's face. Lord, would you strengthen us through the communion meal, through proclaiming the Lord's death to one another, through proclaiming that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, that his life was lived for us. Would you strengthen us to live as you desire us to live, that we would bring you joy and enter into the joy of our master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.